0: So tonight, I'd like to explore with you, which is really the there's the word apana in Pali, which is wisdom, and the teachings are, are so straightforward and simple, and yet at the same time, there's an invisibility. Uh, when uh, there's a constant, uh, constant movement, uh, constantly getting caught in kind of uh, this world and swirl of the world we live in today. So what I'd like to speak about this evening is there are uh, the, really uh, called the three characteristics, uh, which is uh, in Pali anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And they simply translate one translation uh, is impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and uh, selflessness. It seems that if we took any experience uh, that is noticed in this mindfulness, uh, we could put it in one of these three. I was thinking uh, earlier of, first of all, just uh, my gratitude towards, uh, first of all, this need to kind of settle the mind, uh, which the Buddha teaches is a practice of really uh, resting uh, in the breath really fully experiencing the body, uh, knowing the reactions of the pleasant or unpleasant, neutral experiences of Vedna, and the constant uh, wondering of the mind itself. And our practice, once it settles down, is to know in some very direct experience that what's true in that moment. And to recognize these very simple, really profound truths. is essential to our freedom. I've been reflecting over these last actually uh, it's a couple of years now. So I tell a story about um, my first retreat. And um, it was I was quite I was very young. I was four and a half when I did my first retreat. <laughs> and what it was was uh, my parents uh, lived uh, down in Central America, in Salvador, Guatemala. And uh, my, I was taken down there. My mother came to the States. I was born in the United States and then taken down there. And my nursemaid was uh, a Mayan. And she spoke a dialect, an Indian dialect, which my father spoke. Actually, several Mayan dialects. And I learned this language, which is it's a very sing-song, simple language. And I I believe both my parents kind of encouraged me in the language. And since I spent most of the time with in my my nursemaid in. Actually, in India or Nepal, we'll call them ayas and then and my father had a uh, uh, this little tobacco factory for the Indians because he had uh, he went up into the jungles and brought uh, tobacco out and worked just with the Indians and this was in the city of San salvador and This was nineteen fifty one or was it that? and there was a sort of a coup a revolution that happened and within less and I don't know exactly I never have found out what happened, but there was a lot of shooting and they burned this my father's factory down and sort of in the middle of the night you know some d c three took us out to Mexico and uh, then we made it to the states with just you know our clothes and whatever happened in that 24 hours when it came to the States, I stopped speaking. And uh, usually, I don't know, in those years anyway, that uh, I started speaking and then I stopped speaking. So they thought I was an autistic child. So I was put, I was actually in the University of Kentucky as an autistic child. And I didn't speak uh, for a year. I was in silence. And even though it was really from a trauma, there was still this peace about how how one sees. And I realized over the years, as I went into retreat many more times, how at that time there was something that's very natural in all of us, this uh, part that It's really, I see it as what's behind your eyes, that that looks out. And when I first came to the, this Buddhist practice and began to sit, and what, this practice is first seeing really, all the things that uh, prevent us uh, so many times from being free, Uh, our own kind of demons and difficulties and uh, shortcomings. But there was something that I understood mentally that I had no experience except at that time. of, And it's an awareness that we, I think, is the most profound workings that are going on here, if only a single thing is going on here. And that is this ability to connect. You all know when I say when I say impermanent, you all have a sense that that's the way things are. <clears throat> But from this practice's point of view, there is a much deeper understanding and experience of the truth uh, of this very simple awareness. And we sit and we quiet the mind. And create a steadiness. And in a way, it's kind of an oxymoron, because you come here and you're asked to kind of uh, straighten your body and uh, sit and not move. But what are you doing? It is an oxymoron. You're stilling yourself to see into what? to experience what? This anicca, impermanence. The constant flux that um, is not what our minds are reaching for. Because our minds are constantly reaching for what? Comfort and some kind of sense of security in the stabilizing and controlling of temperature, of body experience, of taste, of smell, of sight. Constant. And so what this is teaching is to see into the flux, to see into the flow of things. There was a period after I... Been in Asia, I don't know on off maybe eight years by then, and I had a very um, stable practice, and uh, this is one of the most uh, one of the most wonderful times I can say in, uh, in really my life, my practice. <coughs> I was up in this uh, Kulu Valley. I'd spent uh, I'd spent summers and spring and fall up there. And I would do self-retreats in this uh, little valley that I lived in. And, and uh, there were still the kids would come down and, and uh, sort of sometimes, you know, at five, six in the morning, they'd be throwing rocks at the house and hollering and carrying on. And it was right next to where they would come and mill their grain for the village, for Old Manali. So it could be quite a noisy place, uh, Occasionally. Sometimes uh, it'd be quiet for days and then there'd be a kind of a ruckus around the place. So I went up into the mountains, high up in the mountains, and I found a cave up there. And I thought, ah, I finally found a place uh, where uh, I can really rest and stop and uh, experience and observe the truth of what I had been training in. It was wonderful because most of the time it was above the clouds, so you would look out over these mountains and there would be these clouds. And the kids were great because at that time they taught me um, how to survive. And so it was really really five things I would go. I would go with rice, masala, which is a kind of a, a spices, and chili, and salt and sugar. And then up there, they had taught me how to go out and and um, have had these tongs, and I would go out and, and uh, you could go. Your greens were or along the the rivers were nettles, and you could take tongs and you could. Kind of pack them in, so that was your greens, and and then they also taught me how to pick mushrooms, and uh, and I never got sick. Well, kids taught me though, you know what to do, and and wild onions and garlic and thyme, and so I could spend maybe a week up there, and there would be the steadiness that would come over me. And I could remember that that uh, kind of place in myself, that steadiness, uh, uh, there was always this little tinge of fear there. And that tinge of fear was the fact that what I was looking at, constantly looking at, was this flow. And that somehow the ability to control was elusive, was outside my grip. This Anicca, the experience of Uh, recognizing that you are simply uh, this river of information, this flow that is constantly happening and has no, in a sense, no end. These teachings are about unhinging, somehow, uh, this when one experiences pleasant or unpleasantness. It's not about doing anything about it, because they are due to past conditioning. It arises, is there for a while, and passes away. What is so is this pana, this wisdom, uh, knowing its nature, that it has the nature to arise and pass away, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And out of that comes this confidence that we use this word, letting go. And the experience is not something you can do. You can't be there and let go. The most one can do is to let be what is. Just to let it be. And there is a kind of almost an impersonal process called letting go. <laughs> and so much of our struggle is that, uh, in what, in that, Nietzsche, the recognizing permanence, is this, uh, this wanting. Uh, is about the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness because you actually don't have control. So there's a word Palakima, which uh, word translates as security and so where where is security if this is simply a river that's constantly in flow and what's interesting about the river is that our, our programming our programming is that you want to go towards the shore And all of your instincts say that, if I go to the shore, that somehow I'll be safe, I'll be happy, and yet as we actually struggle towards the shore. Uh, Once in a while there'll be a rock and you'll be able to grab a hold of it. And it, uh, through your own uh, strength, uh, you'll be able to kind of hold on in the river for a while. And believe that somehow, oh, This is, I can keep, I'll be all right, I'll keep this. But the nature of the river that when we come back and we allow ourselves to experience that flow, you'll only be able to hold on so long. And even if you're, you know, some big, huge tree with its roots hanging out there, uh, always have this image of, you know, finally I can grab hold of this. And somehow, then I'll be safe, and I'll be secure, and I'll be. This will be my happiness. But eventually, we get tired, you know. And the most we get out of it is maybe you know, root root burn, you know, you know, slide down the root. And that constant struggle at some point here, we start, this panna, this wisdom starts to arise in us, saying, oh, maybe I'm turned the wrong direction. Maybe that's not where my security lies. And what gets scary here is that uh, if you start going out into the river, uh, one of the things is that uh, this uh, touching of the ground itself uh, consoles us in some way that then we're not moving. You know, I can put my feet down and, and um, hold myself in place. And you've, we've all learned how well to do that. And then with this panna, we start recognizing the... At some point, as we sit here, and we start really experiencing, uh, from moment to moment, the minuteness, the flow. And that there's no security somehow in any of this. And that when we do uh, attach to the ground, to a root, to a rock, that we experience this dukkha, this unsatisfactoriness. And so at some point, then, we have to actually change our thinking, radically change our thinking. And that change is this willingness to not touch the ground, to simply let the flow somehow. Hold you. And we believe that we have to somehow control this. But this practice, and it's very subtle in moment-to-moment times when mindfulness, when there's this clear comprehension of kind of the the direction, the purpose, (coughs) Uh, the recognizing of the organism itself has built into it uh, in its own clarity, which is not about you. Uh, that it is adaptable. It uh, can seek its own balance. And that if we understand in one moment that clarity, this clear comprehension uh, in the practice there is a natural remembering that happens. You don't even have to remember. It will naturally happen by itself. If you go out towards the middle of the stream. And then there is the clear comprehension of who this is. Who are you? Are you what? All these thoughts and stories that you're either the... One side is, it's like a coin, one side is you're the victor, the hero. And the other side is you're the victim. And you flip this coin back and forth, you know, in all these stories. And this practice is simply to see that it is just this coin that's being flipped back and forth. And so there's this clear comprehension. That 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 longs for the ground, to put the feet on the ground and Kind of steady oneself or to grab a hold of the root or the rock holds you in captivity. It points you in the wrong direction. And so this arising with this moment-to-moment mindfulness, this clear comprehension, uh, recognizes that in what is seen and heard and smelled and tasted and felt in the body, there's no place here that you can call keema, you can call secure. So what are we learning if this is all this part has been difficult so far? But then the Buddha was pointing at something that is naturally present here, now. Then in the sense is out of the battle, uh, out of the need for it to be a certain way, and this capacity to relax, to find ease, to recognize the anicca, the impermanence, and recognize to fight it is to suffer. and to be with the truth. For moments allows that letting go of the ground and letting the current pull you towards the center. It was interesting. I went to find my... I had a little kind of quotes and stuff, my my things on this anatta. And so I opened it up. (laughs) And there it was. It's not anywhere. And yet every moment that this practice is built on unconsciousness to self-consciousness, the development of the watcher, which is a figment of your imagination. And then when it's recognized, and released, then there's just consciousness. There's just this, just here. And in that recognizing, uh, where I spoke about at four and a half, sort of this uh, supposed autistic child who retreated. From the, uh, out of fear from the world of the senses and contact, there was still that that knows, that that is aware. And in some ways, I think that's, oh, I kept seeking that. from that first retreat. And it is unstained, unstained by any conditions. What we see here is the product of our senses and our mind. But there is that that is seeing, that that knows that's always been there. It does not suffer. It does not get transitized. It doesn't go into trances. Believing that somehow going towards shore will free it. It's interesting in this story of living up in this cave and coming down. I went back and forth. and um, One of the shocking things that happened was I found I could stay in that stream. But then I came off the mountain and I came here. And this is sort of like a toilet flushing. Excuse me, that's probably bad analogy. It just gets sucked right down. You know? I couldn't, I could not hold that. And it's been this, actually this years of... Of somehow in that swirl that that has been created by the glitter of the shore and the promises. Uh, What's there? Uh, The uh, trickiness of the complexity of this mind and its uh, uh, longing for uh, comfort. And so you can come and uh, sit here and, and hear what I'm saying. You can understand in your own body and in your own sensing that somehow when those moments come and you stop being afraid, when that seeing or smelling or tasting or hearing, when one recognizes that experience of that veda, that pleasant or unpleasantness, it's as if you bow to either. There is no good or bad. There is just the arisings. And then there's a teaching, a deep, deep teaching that's happening here. And that teaching is somehow out in the water, when you've kind of recognized some of this, that you relax, you find ease, and you will float. There is, ultimately, this trust. And the trust is not about what happens, because we really have no uh, uh, good things, terrible things happen. And yet, there is this that's behind the eyes. It is unstained, it cannot be affected by that. And that somehow we have to begin to find that sense of, of trusting, You know, we lose our trust so easily. And there's so many reasons in things to lose trust, in the senses to lose trust. But what I'm talking about is not that. It's something that's with you right now, that holds you. And to learn to trust that and let the river take you Uh, really ties in now back to what Gil was talking about last night. That first of all, a little bit about the trust, though, first. The trust isn't about anything. Uh, The trust is about really, again, about here. That somehow, that this, whatever this gift is called the moment, uh, that there is enormous gratitude that it is enough the way it is. And that if you can rest in that trust about the present, then the fear that is dominating who you think you are is quelled, is released. And the simplicity of uh, the love that comes from the deep understanding of impermanence, of knowing these cat, these simple wisdoms. that we are all flowing in only one direction and that all beings are flowing in one direction and out in the middle of the river to know that is to uh, really feel deep love for really the non-separateness of things. And it includes the senses. It's not to turn away from them. It's to know them for what they are. Uh, To be deep... Friends. So get to know these really well. It is the, the wisdom in this practice that simply allows you to recognize these simple truths when they come up. There are moments that uh, you can know. Oh, this is not here to stay or due to this longing, hey, you suffer. It's not good or bad, it's just what is. And that who you think you are, it's just maybe not that. It is more about a questioning that has to happen, an inquiry that is never, in a sense, uh, the mind is so tricky and complex that, there, that inquiry has to keep keep being again, lived over and over again because of this longing for the shore and believing somehow that that's your happiness. So I'll end here with... uh, So, this is a Chinese poet, Su Ye, third third to the sixth century. So, eh, big wide line there. (laughs) All night I could not sleep because of the moonlight on my bed. So, remember what Gil said about moonlight. I kept on hearing a voice calling. Out of nowhere, nothing answered. Yes? I'll leave you with that. (laughs) You know. So let's just sit for a moment.